Hello and welcome to Think Like an Owner. At the start of episodes, we are having brief two-minute Q&A sessions with our sponsors on all things banking, accounting, insurance, due diligence, and more, all in an effort to share helpful tips and knowledge with listeners. Today, we're starting with a Q&A with August Felker from Overly Risk Strategies. If I'm buying a business, what is reps and warranties insurance and do I need to buy it? So reps and warranty insurance is, is something that's gotten really popular in the last five, even maybe 10 years. And essentially, it's a, it's a one-time insurance policy that as the buyer of a company, you can buy, which will basically insure the reps and warranties of the purchase agreement. So if there is a, you know, a breach in a rep and warranty, uh, you can file an insurance claim as opposed to making a claim on, on an escrow or a holdback or something like that. So it can be really popular because the seller may not have to have as large of an escrow or an indemnity obligation post-closing. And it is really only makes sense if the transaction is $20 million and plus in, in enterprise value. And that's because it's, it's a fairly expensive insurance product and premiums start at $150,000 or so um, and go up from there. And so it really only makes sense on the larger transactions. But for most of the deals that we see, there would be over $20 million enterprise value. It's very common to buy reps and warranty insurance. With reps and warranty insurance, kind of how does it work and, and how do you go about getting it? Really, the insurance company just wants to see a copy or draft of the purchase agreement and the signed LOI and uh, target financials, preferably audited. What they do is they will review the purchase agreement and come up with their own sort of insurance policy, insuring those various reps and warranties. Once you decide to move forward with it, they actually, the insurance carrier, does their own due diligence on the deal. And that usually can take two or three weeks. And then after that process, they'll be able to put the policy in place at closing. You only need to buy the policy once. And again, it can kind of run the normal course of, of, of what the sort of period of time of the reps and warranties are in the, in the purchase agreement. That's great. Thanks, August. To learn more about Oberly Risk Strategies, please reach out to August directly at august.felker at oberly-risk.com and visit their website at oberly-risk.com. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Live Oak Bank and Hood and & Strong for supporting the show. And now to the episode. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman, and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro-private equity, and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com slash podcast and follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook, a print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small company today and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at thearbitershandbook.com. My guest in this episode is Alex Mears. Alex started his career in investment banking and in consulting before leaving for the Navy and eventually returning to private equity at the Carlisle Group. Two years ago, Alex launched a nonprofit called Search and Acquire to support veterans pursuing search 
And he just recently announced a search investment firm he's co-founded called The Brighton Group to invest in searchers from all backgrounds. I really enjoyed getting to know Alex over the last few years. I always appreciate his ability to take concepts from the military and large cap private equity and apply them to our own lives and careers. He's a wealth of knowledge, and I've been excited to record an episode with him for a while. Alex and I kicked things off talking about the causes of failure in search, why you should always invert in due diligence, best practices from large cap private equity, and how to run software and government services businesses. So we were just talking about the causes of failure in search that you've done a lot of research and thinking on. Kind of want to start there versus going straight into the background because that sounds really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So when Steve and I really started getting involved in, in search several years ago, you know, one of the first things that I started digging into, and again, just given the private equity background and, and, and the focus there, was really unpacking what causes failure in search. And I, I use that term loosely. I do not, do not use that term pejoratively. I mean that just in the sense of if a searcher raises a fund, you know, do they close on a transaction? So we'll call that kind of phase one failure. Or in, in phase two failure, if they do acquire a deal and it does not re- return capital, right, or, or one, one times capital, you know. And again, I do not mean that in any way pejoratively, but just just to to, to categorize it. So, you know, we, we basically did a ton of research on using both case studies. We ended up talking to close to 200 searchers, both both successful and unsuccessful, trying to unpack what were some of the common themes and features of searches that that don't work to better improve the model, to better improve the support that we provide to searchers. So to start with the, the, the first bucket, you know, if you want to call it the phase one failure, in the, in the case where a searcher raises a pool of capital and doesn't find a deal, you know, th- these aren't particularly surprising, but what was interesting was how consistent they were in coming up in the conversations with searchers. So the first and, and most common theme that came up over and over again in that kind of phase one failure was the initial ramp up was too slow. And so we heard this over and over again, where a searcher or a partnered search, they, they launched their fund and they really didn't feel like they kind of hit their stride from a sourcing perspective, from a diligence perspective, until they were anywhere from six to 12 months into the search. And if you think about search, whether traditional or self-funded, you know, you're on a clock. And so, and so any, any kind of wasted time or any time where you're not operating at full efficiency, it's just going to lead to suboptimal outcomes. You're just going to see fewer deals. You're going to get fewer reps, uh, and you're less likely to to find you know the one deal that you end up closing on. And so, what we saw in that was, in many cases, they would be you know the CRM system took too long, the data sources they were using, how they worked with interns, how they worked with Upwork, all those things. From day one, it just took too many weeks and months to really get that system up and running. And so we can talk about it later, but that was one of the key lessons that we wanted to apply with what we're doing with our, you know, at the Bryden Group and with the Entrepreneur in Residence Program, is to, to to minimize that amount of time as much as possible, so that searchers are are really getting 24 months of of active searching, as opposed to you know seven months of ramp up and then 15 months of you know real searching and then two months of kind of scrambling at the end. So that was by, by far the biggest. Um, the next one was spending too much time on deals that fall through. And it's that's what, again, this is one of those that is much easier said than done. And there's always such a, you know, when you have a live deal in front of you, it's just so easy to drop everything and focus on it. And really, as we talked to searchers, there were kind of two subcomponents of that. The first was there were deals where their investor base was, I would say, lukewarm going in, but, th- but they didn't get a no. And so they ended up spending a ton of time 
diligence in many cases wasn't, you know, either net positive or net negative from the beginning. But then they they came back to investors, and investors were basically like, "Nah, we don't we don't think this is a good fit for us or for for you." And so, you know, making sure that a searcher is is more aligned upfront uh, with their investor base on opportunities is incredibly important. The second one, the second feature of that that we saw a lot of was, and again, this is. <laughs> Coming from a private equity background, when you were on a live deal, that is, it, it is so time consuming. But basically, searchers would end up focusing 100% on the live deal in front of them, and they would stop building pipeline. And that is, you hear this over and over again. It, again, it is so much easier said than done. But what that means is roughly one third of, of LOIs, deals that are under letter of intent, actually convert to closed transactions. So in you know two thirds of the cases, it's going to fall through. And searchers who, who, you know, don't have that kind of sourcing engine down in that and that that pipeline still humming even while they're focused on doing diligence on a live deal. It just means that you end up starting back from point zero, and that's just really really hard. Again, with a two year time frame, if you lose that deal to get that engine back humming again, just just takes time. And so, you know, that's another thing that that we've tried to focus on heavily in the searchers that we work with is is making sure you've really systematized the Early, especially the early outreach, the proprietary outreach, and even the you know brokered outreach, to to make sure that even when you're working on due diligence on a deal, there is a uh, a pipeline of new opportunities that are coming up. I think candidly, there's just on this on this one, this is something that, that I see all the time in private equity too. There's also just a psychological benefit of having new new deals appearing in your inbox, or at least you know the the prospect of new deals, because there's there's such a tendency, and this is true in private equity, this is true in search, there's such a, a tendency to fall in love with a deal, right? If it's, if it's in front of you, <laughs> it's just so easy to, to, to focus 100% on that. And we just found that even like having new opportunities in that pipeline, it, it helps searchers as it helps us as investors, just be a, probably a little bit more realistic about, you know, how much hair there is on that deal or how many warts there are on that deal. And I think that just leads to better outcomes. One question on the sourcing piece. So I've heard a number of searchers who use, you know, interns or some are even using uh, virtual assistants or, you know, services like Athena or something like that to keep a pipeline going. And have you, what are some interesting strategies you've seen searchers combat that getting sucked into one deal and letting their pipeline dry up a little bit? Do you have, have you seen folks who try to maintain some sort of team or separation between the, the actual grunt work of reaching out to people and building that type, that pipeline? Or like, what are some, what are some ways you've seen folks combat that? Yeah, so it's a great it's a great question. A few. So one on partnered search, I think it's one of the values of partnered search. Generally, what we've seen is is one partner will focus a hundred percent on that live opportunity, and then the second partner may spend thirty percent of their time still focused on on new new sourcing efforts. And so that's one way that works well for for solo searchers. It's just what you said. So we've we've seen searchers who, and whether they use interns or a combination of kind of interns and and outsourced work, making sure there's someone else who is focused on that as their primary, you know, area that they're really focused on and spending their time and effort is just really really valuable because it's so easy to say mentally, hey, I'm going to allocate 20% of my time to new deal sourcing, even when I have a deal under LOI. The reality is just much much more difficult, and so. Um, actually, having someone else who is responsible for that new deal sourcing, again, whether it's a partner or a or an, in, an intern or a group of interns or something like that, we found to be incredibly valuable. Yeah, absolutely. And then you, you were going to mention 
phase two errors. So once the searcher has acquired a business, it doesn't return, it doesn't reach that 1x return uh, threshold. What are some failures there that you've seen? Yeah. And again, with, with this sort of phase two failure, and this, this gets a lot to private equity, right? Because this is really, you know, just a, these, are, these are essentially, you know, micro private equity transactions. So kind of two, two areas, I would say, the first being issues that are identifiable in diligence. And then the second are just issues that there's just no way you could have known beforehand and just happened, right? So when you actually look at the data, the number one issue that we consider highly diligenceable that leads to failure is customer concentration. So I know we've, we've had lots of conversations about this in the past. This is, I, I don't mean to get on a high horse on customer concentration, but un- until you have run a business that has you know, one customer who accounts for 25% of your revenue, it is, it is hard to describe the amount of pain that, that causes to you as a, as a CEO and an owner. And it just, and it gets even worse in a, in a private equity or you know, in, a, in a search or private equity transaction where you're acquiring a business because inevitably the seller always knows more about their business. They always know more about that largest customer and, and they always know most about that, that customer relationship. And so we've seen that customer concentration bite searchers pretty badly or you know, in, in our research, both in terms of immediately after the transition where literally the largest customer just walks away. Uh, and that happens a much higher percentage of the time than you would, than you would imagine, uh, even when a searcher tries to do diligence on that, on that customer relationship and may have even spoken to the customer. But then the second area is just over, you know, a four or five, six year hold period, having one customer who disproportionately impacts your business, it just gives that one customer so much more control. You, you, you control your fate much less than in a business with a lot of diversified customers. And so inevitably, you end up spending your R&D dollars on that one customer's needs, your support dollars, the amount of time and mental energy is focused on not losing that customer instead of really focused on the overall business and, and growing the overall business. And so, you know, we, we see that, that customer concentration issue be fatal, candidly, for, for both those reasons. Really, the period of greatest risk in a search transa- transaction is, call it the six months post-close, right? When you have the existing owner, uh, who's almost always the CEO, transitioning out, and you know a new searcher stepping in as the CEO, and it's risky for all the obvious reasons, right? I mean, it's it's a period where there are always skeletons in the closet that you learn about, no matter how good your due diligence is. So there's always just kind of you know those skeletons you're dealing with. There's also just a question of you know how does the organization accept a new CEO, and so that that is one area that we see lots of transition issue or not, you know, in the data, there's, you know, that, that first six months really can determine and set the course for how the, 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 the investment turns out. And so like pieces of that, it's something that, that Steve and I harp on quite a bit. And I think people are sometimes surprised given that we're kind of, I have that kind of harder finance background, right. Is, is just seller integrity, right. Is, is really understanding deeply. How is that seller treated employees? How have they treated former partners? How, how do they treat customers? And generally, if if the, a seller is has in the past treated those <laughs> those constituents poorly, it, it's unlikely that to be different in a, in a transaction. In fact, it's even more extreme in a transaction when they're selling a business. And so, you know, really getting a grasp around that around that and 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 a true assessment of management integrity uh, is incredibly important because I think that just buying a business from someone who is upfront, candid, you know, you can believe their word just de-risks a lot of those those skeletons <laughs> in the closet that 
always pop up. It's just a question of how extreme they are. Yeah, certainly. I want to walk through your background, but I want to walk through it in a almost like different phases because there's one topic we've talked about a lot just together is different best practices from large cap private equity that you feel are applicable to search or you've seen applicable through your 70 plus deals investing in search. So I'd, I'd love to hear your background story and then at each stage or at each like part of your career, what are some learnings or best practices that you think are going to apply pretty cleanly to the work you're going to start doing at Bryden now? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll, I'll give you the, the, the quick background. Started in finance 20 years ago. Was it, you know, did banking at Goldman, corporate finance at McKinsey, and then was it uh, Blackstone in their in their large buyout fund? This was all pre-crisis. And then basically had an offer to go to business school and, and, and go back to Blackstone. Really, really loved the firm. But this was back in kind of 2007 timeframe. Uh, and I'd always been very interested in the military and foreign service. And if you recall, this was kind of the height of the Iraq surge and, and you know, things were going on in Afghanistan. And I decided basically in, instead of business school to, to go join the military and foreign service. So I ended up spending five years as an intel officer with, with Naval Special Warfare. So I spent a lot of quality time in Iraq, Afghanistan, Indonesia, all those places, and then decided to come back, you know, after five years to, to private equity. And, you know, I'd, I'd always been very interested in government services, software, business services. And ended up at, at Carlisle doing that up, up until just, just, just recently and absolutely loved it. So we, we can talk about specific lessons I've learned th- throughout the career, I think, that are directly applicable to search. But that, that gives you a little bit of, uh, of the background in terms of the, the career. Yeah, certainly. I haven't heard of someone who went, from, went through a finance career and then went to military and then back to finance. It's usually like military, then finance, and then the rest of their career. It's a, <laughs> definitely a, an odd twist that I haven't seen someone do before. So that's pretty, yeah. that's pretty interesting. I, I had a very funny conversation with uh, Steve Schwarzman, called me into his office when I, when I told him that I was turning down the offer to go join the military. It was, uh, <laughs> I, I, think, I think I was the, the, the first time he had run into that, that issue. So yeah, was there some goal that you had going into the military where you, you wanted to learn like these three things or prepare yourself for a career and these were the these were the skills or this was the experience that you wanted to get to that next step? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think for me, the decision to join the military and foreign service, it, it was less about these are the hard skills that I want to acquire by doing this. It was, you know, I, I'd always been very interested in in service. Way back when, back in 1999, I, I, I worked on, on Capitol Hill and got very interested in the rise of Al-Qaeda. And it was clear that they were paying a great deal of attention to us and, and no one in the U.S. was paying attention to them. And at the time, I mean, the U.S. government had only a handful of, of Arabic speakers. So I actually ended up taking a year off from undergrad and went and studied Arabic in the Middle East and actually got back September 11th, 2000. So exactly exactly one year before 9-11. So, so I'd always been very interested in, in that part of the world, in that problem set. And so I think that that probably drove the, the decision more you know, than, than a desire for any kind of t- tangible skill sets. Now, now that said, I mean, it is not a cliche to say that the, the leadership training that you learn in the military is, I think, second to none. Being able to uh, lead a platoon and getting to work with people from wildly different backgrounds in a way that, candidly, you don't in private equity or banking or consulting, right, was invaluable to me, absolutely invaluable to me. And and our third partner at the Bryden Group, George Dutile, uh, who just left JP Morgan to, to, to launch Bryden with us, he and I actually uh, met. In the military and served in Afghanistan together, so there's there's kind of no no better way to to, to you know 
understand someone's character and see how they act uh, and, and react under stress and everything else than, than, than serving in combat. So absolutely, you know, incredibly grateful for the time I spent in the military. And, it, and it's part of the reason why we try to support veterans, you know, pursuing entrepreneurship through acquisition in all its various forms, self-funded, traditional, and, and otherwise. Yeah. So walk us through your notes of learnings, best practices from your career post-military at Carlisle. So what's the, when you combine the leadership experience you had from the military with your finance background and you combine them now at Carlisle and you, you worked there for many years, like what what are some lessons that you took away from that experience? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think I think from, from spending as much time in, in large cap private equity and we always laugh like the years in, in large cap private equity, they're, they're, they're kind of like dog years. Cause you're, you know, you're, you're truly working 80 hour weeks meant <laughs> much of that time. And so you get to squeeze a lot of, a lot more content into a, into shorter periods of time. You know, the first is just really understanding how to quickly come to a view of a business, you know, business quality and, and valuation. And, and that's something that just, it just takes hundreds and hundreds of reps. You know, we always say, I, I had a mentor who always used to say, you know, doing deals is easy. Doing good deals is incredibly hard, right? And if if someone finds due diligence and valuation easy, like they're doing it wrong, right? <laughs> it's this is a skill set that is incredibly difficult to to do well. And candidly, like if you're really good at it, the market will pay you multiple seven figures a couple years out of business school if you're good at it, right? So it's it's one of those things where. You know, that was just tremendous learning though, getting to see literally hundreds and hundreds of deals and businesses and meeting with management teams and seeing what ticks. And then really over time too, seeing, okay, th- that was what we saw in the in the SIM or the SIP, right? The the information man- memorandum up front. What actually happened in the business over time? This is what we thought the value drivers of the business were up front. What what did that actually look like under our ownership or if we passed on a deal, what subsequently happened? So I, I think that just just getting those reps, and we try to apply that with our searchers. Search is such a funny thing because you're you're you get to wear so many different hats for a short period of time. You know, we always try to be very very helpful on, especially on that like quality of the business and valuation. You know, what are the key issues? What are the key analyses I need to do? What's a nice to have? What's a need to have? And then how does that inform valuation? Right. And so so we you know, because that private equity background in very practical terms in search, I am perfectly comfortable supporting a searcher stretching a little bit more on valuation for a higher quality business, just because I feel like we have had the reps and we, and, you know, digging into a business, we can see when that makes sense and when not, as opposed to now no, we have like a, we have a bright line on there's some, there's some multiple you're not allowed to pay more for, right? I think, I think that's, which happens, you know, but so I, I think that has been probably the single most valuable thing that we've been able to, to carry across to our work with, with the searchers that we work with. Can you walk through a few examples or stories that illustrate some of those lessons? Stories on valuation are always pretty boring. I, I think let's take let's take a very uh, simple example, right? So software businesses. So software businesses twenty years ago in private equity, they were the sort of innate value of software businesses were just under recognized, right? By by most, I should say. Over time, what you've seen is not only have have the, the values of those businesses gone up, but you also have, you know, very specialized private equity firms like Vista and Tomo Bravo and others that have that have arisen that do nothing but software and really focus on on those businesses, both you know in the acquisition phase and then kind of their operating playbooks. So what, that's one of those areas where we see that in search, where searchers do software deals. I think you know about forty percent of deals we've done are in software, 
but we, we, you know, search in some ways is kind of where private equity was 20 years ago. Like people kind of, I like software, but there's not a ton of expertise around how to optimize the businesses, how to value the businesses. And in our experience, like a software business is the most quantifiable business in the world. We can sit down with a searcher or with a business and, hey, these are the eight key analyses you need to do. These are the, these are the key metrics. And based on that, yeah, you should stretch and pay more for that business or no, this is a key risk. So there's like on the diligence side, there's a ton that we apply directly you know, for a software business like that. And then in the, in the post-acquisition phase, there are just, you know, it's a solved problem, I would say, in, in large-cap private equity. Like, how do you optimize these businesses? And so, you know, scaling that down and applying that to uh, a searcher in terms of, hey, how do you optimize the sales force? How do you optimize sales and marketing spend? How do you optimize your product roadmap and R&D spend? What are the key metrics to track? Being able to apply those and kind of simplify them for search businesses, we found is just tremendously valuable because there's there's so much value that you can create in those businesses, but you need to know the playbook and you need to know, I've seen it a hundred times to, to, to kind of av- avoid a lot of the common um, pitfalls. You've also spent a lot of time investing in government services, which is an area I've not seen many searchers cover or talk about. So I, I would love to hear a little bit about what, what about government services is attractive to you and what are some key types of businesses within that group that you find really interesting? Yeah. And so, so, so government services, I would say, you know, very broadly, you can think of as, I would say three buckets. One is selling directly to the federal government through contracts. The second would be selling to state and local governments. And we'd include, you know, police forces, public safety, things like that. And that, and then the third is just more, think B2B services, but they're geared towards government contractors in that ecosystem. So, you know, we, I've spent a fair amount of time in that space. I think I think it can be interesting for searchers. One of one of the key issues is that the way the federal government procures, and not to go down a, a whole rabbit hole, but but basically the the federal government sets aside very significant sums, and it varies by agency. You know, think anywhere from five to twenty percent of that of that agency's spending to be spent on small businesses. And there are all sorts of restrictions, uh, legal restrictions around ownership percentages and things like that with those small businesses that can make it very difficult for a searcher to to acquire one of those businesses. So I would say it is something that we absolutely support, but it's also one where you have to know very quickly, hey, these are the three red flags to look out for. If, if any of those three red flags are, are hit, move on, right? Like you, you just can't, there's nothing you can do to solve that problem. And so I think, I think that's, that may be why historically, government services has been an area where searchers spend less time. But absolutely, there's some really, really nice businesses. Some have five-year contracts, eight-year contracts. So as you think about recurring revenue and being able to project a model and evaluation, they can be wonderful businesses. It's just a question of really making sure you have the expertise around contract vehicles. And there's, there's, there are more acronyms in government contracting, I think, than, than any, other, any other sector of the economy. So that, that's what we'd say. Absolutely, we, we would encourage searchers. We have worked with searchers looking at that space. But there are, there are some of these key landmines or red flags that you have to watch out for. Yeah, talking about the ultimate customer concentration with maybe even just one you know, federal government customer. How do you kind of pair that with the search model, which emphasizes customer diversification and you know the almost redundancy within your customer base? Um, it has the recurring revenue, but that customer concentration, I imagine, would scare a lot of people. So how do you kind of fit the two together? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. So, so I think the, 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 one of the most important things with government services is if we're talking about kind of federal contracts, customer concentration matters less. It, contract concentration is what scare, should scare you, <laughs> right, as a, as a prospective buyer. 
the nature of government contracting is, and this obviously varies, and I'm speaking in generalities, but as a general rule, a company that has nine different contracts with different, with a large agency, Department of Defense, for example, or Department of Army, of the Army, if, if those are different contracting officers, they're different periods of performance, they're, they're even different sort of ultimate end, end you know, users within that, in, within that customer, that's fine. That, you know, that's, that's, to me, that's not customer concentration. As long as they're you know, well-diversified across those, that's, that's totally fine if they are disproportionately serving Department of Army. It's, it's the, hey, we have one contract that's 30% of revenue and it's up for recompete next year. That's, that's, where, that's where it gets scary, right? And that's where you have to be very, very careful um, because guess what? All the same issues we talked about with customer concentration when it comes to you know, a commercial business apply just as, just as equally when it comes to a federal business where you know, the seller knows a lot more has a lot more information about the performance on the contract, the odds of winning that recompete and things like that. So, so it's a great question, but the, for, for government services in particular, it's really that, that contract concentration as opposed to customer concentration. Does that make them also hard to grow if there's one primary customer for your service and you just have to rely on your ability to win new contracts? Like, does it, I would imagine like that stable five, eight-year contract kind of works both ways. Like It keeps you stable, but I imagine it could make it more difficult to grow. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, you know, I, I would split that into two features. One, one would be, you know, what are the business development capabilities, i.e., the kind of sales and marketing capabilities of, of the company you're looking at, and two, how much are the existing contracts and what what they're doing, how differentiated are those services, and how likely are they to take those capabilities and kind of, I, I'm making it up, but if they're doing it for some, they're doing, they're providing some high end IT service for the Department of the Army. What does that look like? Can they go take that to the Navy? And can they, they take that to the Air Force? And they, can they take that to broader Department of Defense? So I, I think in, in our experience, that just gets to like, that's just basic commercial diligence, right? It's understanding like how, how differentiated are their capabilities? How good are those customer relationships? How good is that sales and marketing engine such that they can take what they have in sort of existing backlog and actually grow it? Because you're right, it, it, it's, it often can be difficult if, if you don't have th- those those features. And so for a, a CEO of a government services business, what are some of the KPIs in government that they're going to be looking for to just get a sense for on a macro scale, how well are is their business or industry likely going to do? Is it like new bills being passed or orders for certain equipment, like more tanks, vehicles, aircraft? Like what what are some of the KPIs that a government services CEO needs to pay attention to that are happening on the government level? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, some of the KPIs are, are they're, they're very similar to commercial businesses, right? So, understanding backlog, understanding pipeline. What, what's interesting about government services is, is because, in, in a sense, think of them as just there are a whole series of miniature discounted cash flows, right? If if a, if, a, if a government contractor has twenty contracts, literally the way we model that is you would model line by line, you know, the duration of that contract, and then you assume some probability of a win on a recompete if it's going to be recompeted. Uh, or, and then you look at their pipeline and you apply some, it's called a P-win, a probability of winning those new contracts. And so it literally is a, a waterfall. Like you can like add up all those numbers and that's what that's what the revenue in the model will look like. So so those are some of the common metrics. I think in terms of your, the, the broader question on kind of macro trends and you know government spending levels, look, I mean, I think you have to be very careful that you are you are backing at trends that are kind of where there are clear secondary tailwinds, right? So Anything around cybersecurity, around you know cloud deployments, things like that. There's just going to be a lot of, of tailwinds. Whereas if you're backing kind of old legacy hardware systems, 
the orders are lumpier. They're they're you know they can get whacked year to year based on budgets and budget for, you know and, and various partisan priorities things like that. And so you just the answer is, the answer is you just avoid those and, and and focus on the ones where there there are clear uh, secular tailwinds. How do you find out if there's tailwinds? Is there data sets or just people you know or talk to to find out what the government is likely going to be spending more money on versus less? Yeah, I mean, the answer is all, all of the above, right? A lot of it is it's subjective diligence. You're talking in the same way that it's identical to commercial diligence in many cases, right? You're trying to talk to customers. You're, you're talking to experts who are familiar with the industry. Really digging into what are the actual capabilities that the company has. You know, the, the face of a contract can say one thing, but just like just like in in a general commercial business services business, no kidding. What is the service that is performed? How difficult is it to do? How sticky is it? How mission critical? All those factors. That you do in in you know that we do all day long when we're diligencing a, a non-government services business uh, apply here as well. So it's it's there's no kind of one source. I mean, there's there's great data on government spending, but in terms of kind of tailwinds and where things are going, there's a lot more art and and and, and subjectivity to that. Yeah. One other topic we've discussed is this concept of always inverting in due diligence. Can you walk through kind of what that what what you mean by that, and just walk through that concept. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back a little bit to like the start of our conversation, which is when we're trying to optimize outcomes for searchers, I I care a lot more about making sure they don't fail than I do looking for a hundred times, a hundred X return, right? You know, and as we look at our, you know, our entrepreneur and residence cohorts, you know, if we're taking five EIRs a year, I I am much, much happier that each of them make $10 million (laughs) from, from their deal than we have a one that makes 200 million and, and a couple that, that turn into zeros, right? In, in terms of the, the equity payout. So I think that for me, that's just how I think it's, it's much more of a kind of a private equity mindset than it is a, a venture capital mindset. And there's no, there's no right or wrong. It's just, it's just kind of what, and even within search, and that's what's great about search, right? Is, is that there are searchers, uh, search investors who are much more, hey, we're looking for that next big 20x deal, right? And we want to make sure that, that this thing can can explode in a positive way. And that's great. And and so just find making sure that, that a searcher is aligned with their investors on that. Whereas for me, I, I tend to always be years and years ago playing baseball. We always had a coach and they always, they always, they always used to hammer into us that, that like a home run is just a line drive that keeps going. And it, it sounds silly and trite, but I think it's really true when it comes to businesses as well, which is not trying to swing for the fences and 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 just worrying more about your downside ends up uh, resulting in a lot better outcomes for us as investors and for our searchers who are backing, right? So I think that I mean that's just one example of inverting. I mean, we, we 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 do it quite a bit, you know, throughout the diligence process and everything else. But that, that that's just one kind of at a high level how, how we think about it. We had uh, Ryan Turk on the podcast here pretty recently. I mean, he was a veteran in his search or a veteran prior to his search. And he talked a lot about the different lessons from the military that came over and some that didn't come over as well. I'd be curious your experience with investing in dozens of veterans who've come out of the military into search. What's been your experience in terms of what lessons are most applicable from the military versus maybe not as helpful? Yeah. It, so, it, you know, you know, stepping back at a, very, at a very high level, you know, we found generally kind of top tier veterans do make outstanding owners and operators of small businesses. You know, a lot of the the leadership features, the leadership training, you know, working with, you know, people from very, very different diverse backgrounds, all that is, I think, in many cases, a huge strength of veterans stepping in. I, I think 
you know, some, some, of the, some of the shortcomings are not surprising, right? Generally, just the level of kind of commercial awareness, um, the ability to do due diligence, things like that. Now, obviously, you know, veterans certainly can spend time in banking or spend time in private equity or consulting or something like that as well. But, but you know, just speaking in generalities, you know, that's an area where we've, we've seen kind of additional support can be very, very helpful to, to veterans, just given they, they didn't have that kind of business and commercial background, whereas someone of the same tenure who you know did not serve in the military would have would have spent you know four years or six years whatever it is before business school, you know actually working in, in business or finance. Are there certain business models that you've found veterans do really well in, or is it kind of all over the map and there's not any one sector or group that veterans outperform in? Yeah, I, I think in our experience it's been all over the map. We tend to be much more focused, veteran or otherwise, on kind of searcher business fit, and so. You know, the great thing about search and ETA more broadly is no matter what your background is and your interest, there's there's probably a business out there for you, right? So we've backed people from Cyber Command who go buy software businesses, kind of very high-end software businesses. And we have supported, you know, people coming out of the military who want to go do more kind of the traditional dirty job, kind of, you know, HVAC services or plumbing services businesses or things like that. And And the beauty of the model is that they can do all those, you know, th- th- those are all open to them. And I'll see the, the kind of the importance of leadership and how to motivate people, how to incentivize people. All those are, those are all, th- those, those kind of transcend specific industries or specific business models. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And we, we've talked a lot about support as well of not just veterans, but just searchers generally and trying to build a firm that supports searchers in the, you know, the greatest possible way. What are some ways that you think Braden can be a better supporter for searchers, for the searchers you invest in? Like, what are some ways that you think might be interesting to provide an extra level of support? Let's bucket kind of the search, the acquisition, and then the the operating phase. And so in, in the search phase, I think there are just a lot of best practices around sourcing where we think we can help add a lot of value in terms of you know how do you how do you list build? How do you build an industry thesis? How do you reach out to river guides? How do you you know build the relationships with the small business owners? So George Dutile, our, our third partner, is coming from J.P. Morgan on the private bank, and so has kind of the best training in the world at how do you reach out to to small business owners and how do you you know how do how do you communicate with them? How do you relate to them? Because at the end of the day, it's a it's a personal relationship really that drives the decision for a, a small business owner to sell to a searcher. So I think there's a lot that can be done on, on the sourcing front, right? And we've we've tried to build just basically a better mousetrap when it comes to that. I mean, the other thing is, candidly, the three of us come from that background. So we will be sourcing in the trenches with our searchers, right? You know, we, we have a lot of great relationships with kind of like lower middle market investment banks and brokers, you know, especially around software, B2B services, government services, GovTech, things like that, where we see a fair amount of proprietary deal flow today. And so being able to kind of feed that into our searchers pipelines, I think is something that hopefully just makes that that phase easier and more productive for our searchers. On the acquisition side, I mean, that's 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 kind of where I I, I really roll up my sleeves. And this is, I think there, there's a ton that, that, that can be done to, to improve that, that process for searchers, right? I mean, just understanding Hey, this is what these are the five pieces of data given this type of business that you need to go request day one, and then and then okay, how does that you know based on those analyses, how does that inform the valuation? Iterating on that quickly, and not not spending a ton of time either requesting information or doing diligence that 
kind of doesn't move the needle, but people, you know, a searcher may feel like they have to do because, you know, they've seen it in an old deck that was passed down to them or something like that. I, I think there's, there's a lot of value in that. Even to the point, I mean, we, I, you know, oftentimes, you know, I'll take a, literally jump in the Excel and help a searcher. Hey, they're looking to software business. Okay, how do you do a cohort analysis, like a, a meaningful cohort analysis? What are the outputs of that? And, and what is that? Most importantly, what does that mean? You know, what does that, what does that mean in terms of the quality of the business, in terms of the valuation that you're willing to offer, and in terms of value creation post-acquisition? Because you can often identify a lot of those, those levers in diligence. So there's, I think, a ton where it's like just taking what we do every day in large cap private equity and kind of distilling it down and providing those tools and frameworks and, and can we just to support on modeling, on valuation, on due diligence that they can really you know, drive a lot of, of value, make a searcher's deal process much more efficient and, and allow them to come to better answers. And then on the operating side, you know, and again, this was, you know, Steve's background, right? I mean, he is multi-time founder, CEO, sold three businesses to private equity, et cetera, et cetera. And so really just just distilling some of the key operating playbooks down for, for search. And so we, we think there's, there's just a ton of value that you can create, especially in these recurring revenue businesses, whether software or business services or, or government services, where you know, the appropriate way, you know, what, what is that dashboard? What, what, what does your KPI dashboard look like from day one, right? Like this is a solved problem in private equity. Like don't try to go create that, right? This is the answer. Like use this one, right? <laughs> and this is what it means. And this is why you should care about it. And this is how you, this is how you impact those levers. And these are the pros and cons of this, right? So there's just a ton of value also on the operating side. We think that, that rolling out kind of the, the kind of a, a slimmed down version of a private equity value creation playbook um, that, we, that we can provide and, and work hand in hand with our searchers on to, to drive value. One other kind of, macro question around search investing that I was curious about is you've obviously been a search investor for a long time and know others who are investing in search. What has been the the investor appetite for search over the last, call it five years? Like, Is it, I've from what I've seen, it's just only increased, but I would love to hear perhaps a more detailed look at what that interest has looked like over the last few years. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think in our experience, yeah, the, the, the increase, the the interest has increased, you know, in commensurate with how much interest in search more broadly has, has increased, right? As you look at the number of searchers, that's growing kind of actually has grown exponentially in the last few years. And I think the the level of investor interest has maybe not kept up entirely with that, but has grown significantly. And so, you you know, you see it in many ways, you, you have a lot of searchers who exit, have successful exits, and then look to raise small funds to kind of invest back in the community, which, which is wonderful. And then you have some kind of you know, people who are who are new, who kind of are are intrigued by the model. They they read the Stanford study and see the returns. Who are involved. So you know, I think the, the good news is there are given the the growth in search. You know, we've we've really enjoyed getting to know, you know, almost all the the investors in the space, and and everyone has a slightly different approach and a slightly different preference. And you know, how much do they get involved? What are their types of industries they like? And so you know, we always just try to be very candid and upfront with the searchers that we look to back and this this is what this is who we are this is what we like this is how we try to add value and if that and, and these are our values and if, if those align then great and if not there's a, a wonderful ecosystem to really you know for searchers to to select from in terms of you know picking their their investor base what were the values that you spent a lot of t- i know you spent a lot of time putting your values together i would love to hear kind of what what was the result of that work and, and thought process yeah, so I mean a couple of things. One is, and this maybe goes back to kind of time George and I spent with the SEALs, is that the, the culture of providing candid feedback 
and, and being upfront about challenges while not being a jerk, <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually harder to do than it sounds, right? T- typically what you see in cultures is either, either the culture encourages, you know, colleagues and employees to bury bad news, you know, and, and not, not surface issues, or it can be a little too, you know, it, it kind of cutthroat or sharp elbowed. And, and to us, like both those values are very important, right? We, we, like, I, I really like to like the people I work with, right? I care a lot about them as people. I, I, you know, I want to go grab dinner and drinks and hang out with their families and stuff like that. that that's to me is that that's just very, very important. But at the same time, I want to be told if I'm doing something wrong. I want I want to know on my side. I want to know, hey, if there's a problem with the business, it never gets better with age. Just just highlight it. Hey, this is the problem. The, this is what I'm thinking about for you know the, the, I have these three options to to address the problem. Like, what do you think? Right? Like that that's that is a key part of just that that kind of culture of feedback, but also kind of transparency and and honesty. And so building that both within Bryden and the way like we as partners interact, but then also the way we work with our searchers, right? Like we, we want to, we want our searchers to always know, you know, where we stand and, 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 um, and Hey, we, we think we like this or we don't like this. And, and these are the issues, but always in a very respectful and nice, well-intentioned way. And, and, and striking that balance is, is in my experience, surprisingly difficult in, in, in a lot of institutions and cultures. One thing you're doing with Brighton Group that I'm kind of excited about too is this entrepreneur in residence program. Can you walk through kind of the structure of that and you know what your what your plans are for that program? Yeah, so what we wanted to do with the the entrepreneur in residence program is at Brighton is really to combine the best of private equity and the best of search for a very small number of of entrepreneurs that we back each year. So the three partners, Steve Ressler, George Dutau, and I. You know, we've had many conversations over the years with prospective searchers, especially those with more work experience. So think kind of like a McKinsey engagement manager who's you know, three or four years out of business school who would love to pursue search. But they look at the two existing options. And, and for some of them, it just it, you know, may not make sense. You know, for traditional search, there's just no way they're going to take a pay cut and go earn you know, 110 to 125K a year, even more so on the self-funded side, which can, you know, is, 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 can be a wonderful model as well. But for you know a lot of the people in those positions, you know, can be bedded all on black with a, a personal guaranteed, you know, self-funded deal. It just just doesn't really make sense given where they are uh, in their lives. And so what we what we want to do was to design a program that gave uh, you know an opportunity for those both more experienced prospective searchers, uh, but then also you know we, we certainly will consider and take searchers directly out of business school as well. But basically by by offering you know additional salary so rather than that kind of 110 to 125k we're offering um searchers salaries between 150 and 200k per year while they're searching um we as bryden will will write um basically take 90 percent of the equity uh in their search uh, both at the time you know both in, in the upfront search vehicle and then at the time of the transaction and what that does is it allows us to actually do a you know and, and allows our searchers to do sort of a much broader range of uh, deal sizes. So because because you know we're taking ninety percent, a searcher, an entrepreneur residence that we're backing could do a deal as as small as five million in enterprise value, all the way up to to fifty million, and they have kind of the benefits of committed capital behind them to to do that. And we're happy to support you know that that whole range. And so we just think it, it drastically increases the likelihood that our entrepreneurs and residents will will find a deal. 
in very practical terms, you know, we're going to be offering kind of, you know, 10 days of initial training down at, at a resort in the Caribbean as a kickoff. We're, we're going to be taking five, five uh, entrepreneurs and residents per year in a cohort. Uh, and we've just seen there's, there's tremendous value in, in searchers going through this as a cohort. So we'll have that, that initial training that, you know, we fully fund. You know, as we've seen it, you know, I think we, we've talked about this a bit before. As traditional searchers, they do have to commit to being, you know, national in, in their scope in terms of where their search is. But at the same time, you know, the vast majority of searchers end up finding a business to buy within 100 miles of where they base their search. And so I think we just wanted to come in with a little bit of reality around that and, and say, OK, uh, you know, rather than having you search where we are based, which is Washington, D.C. or New York City, you know, we'll provide all the, the training and the support remotely so that that someone, if they want to, you know, base their search in Texas or Florida or wherever it is that they, they want to, that, that, that they can do so. Uh, and we can provide the full, full, full support. So after that initial in-person training, we'll do quarterly in-person gatherings, uh, which is, will be a combination of both training and, and, and support on an ongoing basis for the two years. So, you know, it, it, we also just tried to address, you know, a lot of the, the challenges we talked about initially. And I think we're seeing uh, what, what a lot of searchers run into is actually the majority of sellers and the majority of you know, brokers or, or lower middle market investment bankers candidly won't even sort of take a searcher's call because they worry about the lack of committed capital, right? They worry that, that a searcher has to go back, whether it's traditional or self-funded, and, and kind of put together the equity after the fact. And so what, what, we're, what we're doing with Bryden is basically trying to combine the best of, of, of both worlds. You know, a, a searcher can go out to an owner and say, you know, uh, you know, say basically they do have committed capital uh, in, in the form of, you know, Bryden backing them, um, but they're not private equity, right? Like they can also describe you know, what a search is and how they're going to, you know, step into the CEO role. So really, we think it's, it provides kind of the best of both worlds for our searchers and, or for our entrepreneurs and residents as, as they're going out, you know, interacting with, with, with small business owners and, and sellers. And I think most importantly, and this goes back, you know, to the start of our conversation, was as, as we looked at kind of the key challenges that searchers face, you know, I mean, the, the reality is it is becoming much more competitive, especially to find high quality deals. And that's true in both traditional and self-funded. And that competition is coming from, from private equity. And so what, what we want to do is take kind of the absolute best practices from two decades in large cap private equity and for Steve and in, in, in operating businesses and for George on, on, you know, especially on sourcing and, and reaching out to small business owners, and and distill that down to kind of we jokingly call it arming the rebels uh, for our, for our searchers so that they can much more effectively compete. So as an example, what that looks like in real time, that that sort of you know five six seven month ramp up period that we talked about previously, and when a searcher is getting their CRM system down and the, the you know just understanding how to work with interns or or outsource work. Instead, what they do is day one they step in and we have that all set up you know like a private equity firm so they can tap into. They don't have to go individually buy a whole bunch of, you know, source scrubs and zoom infos and things like that. They have all of that. We have an outsourced team already that's, that's doing uh, a lot of the data cleanup and things like that, that that can just take quite a bit of time for searchers as they're, as they're scaling up. And, and then lastly, you know, just bringing back best practices around sourcing. So not only on the training side, but also, you know, we will actually be out uh, sourcing with our searchers, um, you know, according to the kind of their the industry niches that they're looking in. And just given our backgrounds, you know, we, we already see quite a bit of deal flow in software, in, in business services and government services. And so being able to, you know, plug our entrepreneurs and residents into that deal flow 
hopefully helps just them get you know more and better reps quicker uh, and end up with better deals. And then the last piece I think is is you know on on, on the sourcing is as we talked about that that you know one of the causes of failure is is if that deal falls through we're spending too much time on deals that don't go through. You know again the good news is you know working hand in hand with our entrepreneurs and residents we and our searchers will know literally on a day by day basis kind of how attractive an opportunity is how hard to run at it. And when a searcher or one of our entrepreneurs in residence is working on a live opportunity, you know, if they have a deal under under LOI, well, there's a whole team that's that's in the back that's still kind of really running that that proprietary outreach engine, you know, reaching out to brokers, reaching out to to, to small business owners, so that so that they, you know, if the deal falls through, the the searcher can come back to basically a full pipeline that 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 you know we have helped maintain while while they were focused, you know. Almost full time on, on an opportunity under LOI. So anyway, so we're, we're we're very very excited about it. You know, we really tr- are are trying to combine the best of of private equity and the best of search, and it is a bit of a hybrid. But we think you know for for five you know searchers a year, it, it could be you know pretty compelling uh, as they're thinking about buying a small business and and doing so uh, with with a level of support. That we think is really attractive. So we're, we're opening our application process now for the for the 2022 uh, cohort. You know the deadline is June 15th for, for applications, and the co- cohort will kick off in kind of late August, early September, um, with that training down in the Caribbean that I mentioned. So yeah, we're, we're very very excited about the program, and uh, you know a, a lot of thought went into to really structuring it so it was a truly better offering for our searchers, and, and truly will end up. Uh, in better results for our entrepreneurs and residents. I always enjoy our chats and they always go uh, quite long and I wish they could go longer, but I want to make sure we get closing questions out of the way. What college class would you teach if it could be about any subject you you wanted? So I'll give two answers. The one the one is kind of a, an easy cheating answer, which is advanced topics in due diligence and valuation for search because it's a program we're actually pulling together <laughs> and, and have thought parts of. So that, that's a, that's an easy one taking kind of the best practices from private equity and helping kind of give that next level. Once the searcher reads the books and hears that they should do quarter spy forces, like no kidding, what does it actually look like from a due diligence perspective? I, I think is really valuable. The second one, it, it's probably unusual, would be just like a course on happiness and like what what actually, you know, looking empirically, looking historically at like humans approach to how do you live a good life, right? And I think I think there's been a lot of interesting research. I, I studied economics as an undergrad, and there's been a lot of really really interesting research that's come out you know, over the last 20 years on, hey, these are things like there's just a kind of a genetic set point, but then you know are, there are certain activities you can pursue, there are certain you know values and things like that that just seem to correlate very well with kind of human flourishing. And I think it, it's probably the single most important thing we as humans have to decide, <laughs> right? Like, what is the career we want to pursue? Who are the people we want to surround ourselves with? Friends, family, colleagues. And I feel like it it doesn't get addressed uh, ever in, in in any way a, a a kind of in a in a scientific or or kind of thoughtful way. And so, just pulling from like the research and, and showing kind of what works and what doesn't, and you know. There's, as you know, probably from from studying, you know, behavioral economics, there's there, there's massive differences in terms of what people think will make them happy versus what actually makes them happy, and and just being aware of those biases. It's not like it's not like it cures you, but just being aware of those going in definitely not only makes you a better investor and and operator of a business, but just make makes someone's life richer and 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 more meaningful. Yeah, I completely agree. 
What's a strongly held belief you've changed your mind on? Yeah, and this is this is one I would say that that's evolved over twenty years. You know, and again, maybe it goes back to having studied economics as an undergrad, where the 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 numbers all line up neatly and the charts are all you know the supply demand lines cross perfectly. It's how much kind of human emotion and and subjective reactions matter in terms of in terms of outcomes, right? Like like deals at the end of the day. I, I think everyone who who ends up committing to a life of, of doing, you know, private equity or transactions or something like that. At, at the end of the day, a lot of it comes down to, do you trust the person across the table? Do you like them? Is this something that you want, you know, both in terms of prior to an acquisition and then the operating phase? And so I think I have come to appreciate much more how important build a relationship with an owner before you start grilling him for what his net retention rate was two years ago, right? Like, like it's, it's, it's much more important that you kind of establish that common rapport and common values in a very in a, in a, in a positive way, not in a manipulative way, then then you get the exact right answer, right? And it, it always happens, like we always laugh in private equity, like, and, and this is not but like the analysts and the associates always like, they always want to get to the number, like they need the number, they need the answer. And, and that's, that's important. And it's not, of course, you need to get to that ultimately, but oftentimes, the way you approach it and being thoughtful about the relationship you're building with the other person is, 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 is even more important than kind of just that one number. Yeah, I completely agree. That's a great one. What's the best business you've ever seen? I, I will not use specific names, if that is okay, just just given NDAs and everything else. I, I would say, and not to give an unsatisfactory answer, but two business models in particular, and when they intersect, they're just absolutely amazing businesses. And it's, it is software, like vertical market software and information services, kind of media or how, however you want to define that. And if you can combine those two, it just it just is an incredibly powerful business model, and the reason is, I mean, in very simple terms, if you think about it, the, the marginal cost, if you have, uh, you know, are operating a software business, or if you're operating generally if you're operating information services business, your marginal cost is zero, you know, or, or pretty close to zero, and so that that is just such a tremendously powerful fact. <laughs> and a lot of people don't, you know, I think when when we work with a lot of searchers, you know, in doing more think like a traditional text and trucks business or something like that. Like, there are actually three limiters on revenue growth. Only one of them is customer demand. You know, everyone always like only focuses on customer demand or end market demand or however you want to characterize it. But in reality, you know, especially if it's business is labor intensive, it's often actually hiring the right labor to support that customer demand is really the limiter on growth. And then the third being kind of capital that you would need, like in a text and trucks business, for example. Like, can you actually get the trucks to support those additional, you know, the additional customers and the and the additional uh, labor, the skilled labor that you're supporting? And so. So if you look at information services and, and and software, because the marginal cost is zero, that just makes your life so, so much easier to grow the business, to expand, to scale. And that's that's how you just end up with, with incredibly positive outcomes. I would say the last feature of that is if you can combine those two, and then there is actually some network effect, right? Where think, and like just to use an, an example, think about software that you would sell and put on a jet engine. And that that software collects data on the jet engine's operations and based on that data is able to you know make maintenance recommendations or repair recommendations or things like that so so not not only do you have there's there's a piece of it that information services right because each engine is totally different and required has different parameters etc there's a software piece of it because you are actually you know installing a piece of software on aircraft's computer system but there's also a bit of a network effect right because the more engines you're on the more problems you'll see the more data you'll have 
to help either extend maintenance or you know all the, the the things you can do to to sort of create value for the end customer. And so so finding those businesses, it's incredibly hard. I know venture capitalists always love to talk about network effects. They're actually much rarer in the wild than they are uh, in PowerPoint. But but when you can find those, those are just incredibly valuable businesses. Yeah, that's a fascinating one. I'll have to ask you about that one later. But thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your time. I always enjoy our chats and I want to congratulate you on the Brighting Group and putting your putting your business together and making it and leaving Carlisle and having your own search venture. It's very exciting. So I'm, I'm excited for you and I'm, I'm, I can't wait to track the next few years that, that Brighton's going to have. No, thanks so much, Alex. And one thing we didn't talk about, which I uh, am uh, very grateful for, is, is that you actually came up with a name several years ago for Search and Acquire for our, for our nonprofit. So I, I always want to give creative credit where it's due. So so very, very much appreciate that. And uh, and also just appreciate what you've done for the search community. I mean, I know we've, we've been talking for years, but just, you know, being able to show searchers all the different flavors of search and types of investors, types of businesses. I think you're doing an, an amazing service for the community. And so so really do appreciate it. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. And I'm very proud of that name. So I'm glad, you, <laughs> glad you're sticking with it. Absolutely. All right. Thanks so much, Alex. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Put In Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast. And if you want to learn more about The Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better. Music